We said we'd be back with more episodes, and we are. Welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Alex McNamee. It's election season, and for that, we're trying to line up some interviews with uh, journalists who know a thing or two about elections, and that starts today with Jessica Hoosman, national politics reporter for ProPublica. So stop wasting time, Alex. Let's get right to it. Jessica Hoosman, uh, national politics reporter for ProPublica, uh, and it is politics season, if I guess it ever does go out of season, but this is kind of the home stretch with, with midterm elections coming up uh, in a few weeks. And in trying to schedule this interview, Jessica, we talked about how crazy a time this can be for you and for your work schedule. What are these days and weeks leading up to the election like? They're a little bit unique for me. Um, per, <laughs> national politics reporting at ProPublica looks a little bit different than it might look at a, at a newspaper that does breaking news or campaign coverage. So we don't cover the campaigns and we don't do breaking news. What we do is we have a, um, have a project called Election Land, and it helps thousands of local reporters across the country cover the election itself better. So by that, I mean, we're covering the act of voting. So now that early voting has started, our work schedules have started to get longer and longer. Um, so the idea is that we're getting tips. We have, um, there are call centers all across the country that if you have a problem voting, you can call this bank of lawyers that's run by several nonprofits and ask them for help. And those nonprofits give us their data. And so we can see in real time who's having problems voting, and then we push that information out to local reporters so they can go to the polling locations that are having problems and cover them very quickly. And so what we're doing really is that we're kind of up when the polls open, which is usually at 7 a.m., looking at the data coming in, packaging it up nicely for reporters, and then sort of acting like a call center for reporters who might need help. So we are on the clock the entire time polls are open. And then when polls close, we're thinking about our own stories and what national stories we can tell based on the data that we have. Yeah, you're almost, I mean, it's, uh, it's information that you're gathering that um, other reporters can essentially use and, and reference in their other stories about bigger and grander um, aspects of the election and the candidates and the, the states yeah. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I'm and i really proud that we're doing that. I think that, um, you know, if you think about how reporters covered voting in previous elections, they would kind of, you know, you might be a local reporter, let's say in Philadelphia, and you, have, you know where all of the polling locations are, and you just kind of drive around asking people if anything's going wrong. You don't really have any direction, so you don't get a lot of stories out of that day. And you're not really helping people make voting better um, because, you know, things tend to get better when um, reporters cover a problem. And so when we, now we can say there is a problem happening at this specific polling location, you should, location in your town and you should go directly there. So journalists have a little bit more of a mission on um, election day covering, you know, if a, if a lot of polling machines are malfunctioning, 
if there are poll workers who are giving incorrect instructions to people who vote, and so people are not voting in the way that they should, um, if lines are really long because something has gone wrong, we know all of that very quickly, and journalists can move very quickly towards those problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's very kind of system-driven and uh, laying out the problems that prevent voters from participating and that sort of thing. What do you like about um, that angle of reporting as opposed to, you know, the uh, everything else that you're seeing in national media about candidate driven news and who they are and what they stand for and what one's saying about the other? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, so first of all, I don't think anyone else is doing it. So it's, it's good to be doing something that is unique. And then I think the flip side is that I think covering campaigns can be um, incredibly draining. And I think that mm -hmm. often the coverage that comes out of covering campaigns is not very useful. Um, I, I used to cover campaigns and they are incredibly scripted. You, every time you sit down with a candidate who's on the campaign trail, and I've done some of that because camp candidates often talk about voting this season as well. Um, they don't really give you straight answers, um, but poll workers do, right? So when you are covering a problem and you're talking to election an election administrator, you're going to get to the bottom of it a lot faster because they're going to be straightforward with you because they're just really trying to do their jobs and they don't want these problems to happen either. Whereas candidates on the campaign trail aren't necessarily going to be honest with you all the time. Um, and also, I think that voting is something that directly impacts people. So if you go to a polling location and you, there are five polling machines there and four of them are broken and you have to stand in line for two hours, that's a problem that materially mm -hmm. impacts your life. Whereas, you know, you may not really care about what this candidate says about, I don't know, energy, or you may not really care about what this candidate has to say about agriculture. Um, you do care if you show up to a polling location and a person tells you that you're not on the roll, then that's a mistake. Um, so, you know, I think that we're engaging with the system a little bit more directly um, in, a, in a bit more of an honest way. And I think that our work has the potential to really improve the lives of voters. Has uh, monitoring the early election voting or preparing election land for the midterms, has it been any different than, say, the last presidential election when you rolled this out? Yeah, so it's the midterms are a really interesting thing. Um, <laughs> usually you expect pretty low turnout in midterms. Unfortunately, this, uh, the country doesn't really show up in force unless a presidential election is happening. Mm -hmm. um, but this midterm election seems to be a little bit different. So we're expecting, in theory, pretty high turnout for a midterm election. I don't know that it will match 2016 turnout. Um, but we're expecting higher turnout. And what that means for us is that, and this is probably logical to you, when more people turn out to vote, you have more problems. Mm -hmm. Even if the problems would exist anyway, they become more pronounced. So if you've got a place that has five polling machines and four are broken and only 12 people turn up to vote, that's not really a big deal because it doesn't take that long to vote and everybody can vote on that one machine. But if you've got one polling machine and 100 people turn up to vote, then you're looking at a really long line. So when turnout is up, the problems that already exist become much bigger. And so we're already seeing a little bit of that in, in early voting. So for example, 
uh, in the primary. So if we roll back even further, in Maricopa County, Arizona, they had really huge problems with their voting machines. And so people were waiting in line. There were people who were turned away from the polls entirely. Um, and so we saw problems like that. And the primary was pretty heavy turnout for that county in Arizona. And so our local partner, the Arizona Republic, spent a lot of time covering what had gone wrong with that election um, already. So, but I also think, you know, when when the midterm is is less about a single person. So in 2016, when we did this, everybody was really, really concerned about the national results. Everybody wanted to know if Hillary was going to win, or everybody wanted to know if Donald Trump was going to win. Um, and so the election seemed to be pretty uniform, and people were thinking about the same things. In the midterm election, there is no overarching national candidate. So all of the problems are local, and all of the concerns are local. So you have to think about it kind of covering thousands of different little elections happening across the country rather than one big one. Um, and so that's just a little bit of a mindset shift. Do you feel like the kind of findings of election land are things that maybe even student journalists should be aware of and um, be checking into to kind of cover their state or their um, local elections and how it was run? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, I think that, that journalists, that, that voting itself impacts students more than about any other national issue. And I say that for a couple of reasons. So first, um, voting in, in many states takes place inside of schools. Um, mm -hmm. So if there is chaos in voting, that means that there's chaos it literally inside of school building. Mm -hmm. So I would be, I'd be willing to bet that, that student journalists don't even have to go very far to cover the election and how it ran, because it's probably happening inside their school building in a lot of states. Um, and then also, you know, seniors in high school who are 18 years old um, are able to vote. And even seniors in high school who are not 18 years old by the time of the election are able to register to vote. So what a lot of people don't realize is that high schools are federally required to offer voter registration to students turning 18 two times a year. And a lot of schools hmm. do not do that at all. And so like, this is a flagrantly disregarded federal law. And high schools are supposed to have voter registration forms available at all times. Um, and a lot of schools don't do that either. And so it would be very <laughs> easy for student journalists to fact check that in their own school building and ask their administrators if they're offering students the opportunity to vote or to register to vote two times a year and if voter registration forms are available. And if the question, if the answer to either of those questions is no, then your high school is in violation of federal law. <laughs> so I think that there's, there's quite a lot that student journalists can do surrounding election administration, and I hope they do. I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to find that just absolutely shocking. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that about high yeah. school, and I, I'm sure a lot of them don't experience that. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking about that myself the other day. I don't remember where I registered to vote, but I'm confident it wasn't at my high school. Yeah. I don't remember my high school ever doing voter registration drives. I, my college certainly did, but my high school did not participate in that at all. And I think that that's a very common experience. So that's that's so huge, isn't it? I mean, with these a lot of you know first time voters, and you really want to get these young people kind of activated. So you know, I assume you know covering it as, as student journalists and letting people know how to vote, where to register, what it's going to look like for them, who the people are. You know, 
those are probably some of the most important or valuable um, pieces of reporting that uh, you know those kids in high schools and colleges can do. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think that it's especially important for young people to be engaged in the system because if you really think about the people who are most impacted by the by the political system, young people are very high on that list. And there's a lot of reasons why, right? If you are if you go to a public school, um, if you are graduating high school and you're going to a public college or even a private college with federal financial aid, um, or if you participate in federal health programs, um, or if you are getting, um, if you're getting a federal grant or a state grant to go to college, I mean, your life is entirely impacted by the public policy decisions that mm-hmm. people make. I mean, if you if you attend a public university, not only are you sort of at the whims of state officials when it comes to school funding and how much your tuition costs. But also all of the services that your school offers are made are those are decisions made by lawmakers by and large, or at least made by the people who are appointed by state lawmakers. So if you think about statewide university systems, the heads of all of those are generally appointed by the legislatures of the state, or at least approved by them. And so your life and every, the things that you get up and do every day are directly impacted by the choices that your elected officials make. And so young people have sort of vested and personal interest in making sure that they agree with those decisions. And so I think that the the move to register people to vote early in high school and make voting a habit is really important one. Um, and I think student journalists can be a really big voice in that. You've covered campaigns before. You've talk to candidates and you know nowadays there can be such a negative connotations for journalists let alone student journalists who are out there in the field trying to report what what advice would you have for you know let's say some 17 or 18 year old who's out there trying to cover the day of the election or out there trying to interview candidates Um, and you know that can be intimidating and, and overwhelming altogether for them can be intimidating. And, you know, I, I, I they shouldn't feel bad if they're intimidated. I regularly feel intimidated yeah. I've been doing this for a long time. So um, I think that it's just a little bit about grit and about thinking about what you are going to produce at the end of the day and how many people are going to read that. So if you are intimidated in the moment, what should outweigh that is the satisfaction that you'll feel that you're getting people really important information at the end of the day. And so you just kind of have to power through. And it's funny because, you know, I've been doing this for, for a long time and I used to cover campaigns. And before that I covered um, public education, which is actually a very confrontational thing to cover. Yeah. Parents are very concerned about <laughs> the state of their school and, so they get very angry. Um, but so, you know, I've been yelled at a lot, but I think in the last year and a half, I have been yelled at by random people more than I have ever been yelled at in my life in any, for anything. <laughs> in, in <under> any <laughs> circumstances. And for what I, what I have taught myself to do to diffuse the situation. Um, and I think that student journalists, um, can learn from this as well, and this might sound really crazy, is that it doesn't matter if somebody's yelling at me in person or on the phone. And I find that people most often don't yell at you in person. They yell at you over the phone. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to yell at somebody that you're looking at. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just force myself to smile. And 
I just listen to them yell until they're done yelling. And yeah. then I give them a couple of seconds to collect themselves. And most often what will happen is that they will sit there in that two, in just two seconds of silence after they've been screaming at me and they'll realize what they have just done and they will apologize. <laughs> and so that is how I handle those situations is I force myself to smile, which like makes me feel better. And then I just let them have their stay and give them a couple of seconds of silence at the end. And then we just move on. And for most often that happens. I mean, we're living in a really, really tense political environment right now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I think that everybody is impacted by that, regardless of how aware of it they are. And so people, especially when you're talking about something that's political or involves campaigns and election administration certainly does, people tend to get very emotional about that right now. And so, you know, I think irrational reactions to questions are, are very common. Um, and sometimes it's cathartic for people just to yell it out. <laughs> yep. And then they'll, they'll have a more logical conversation with you afterwards. But, <laughs> but you know, I think, I think that most people, even if they snap in the moment, realize very quickly that they're not treating you very well and will, and will fix it. <laughs> well, and when you let them unload on you as you feel like they need to and you don't react, it's probably not the reaction they think they're going to get. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I think when somebody screams at you, they expect you to scream back. And mm -hmm. so when you don't, it diffuses the situation. I mean, maybe that's just a good life lesson in general. Right. <laughs> when somebody is screaming at you, just don't scream back and the conversation will end. I. So, you know, I think, I think that when they realize that you're not going to be sort of um, caustic and rude back, then they will very quickly stop being that way to you. And I try to do the same thing when people email me because that's all also something that happens to me. You know, if an email is just extreme and ridiculous, I won't respond to it. But if there's somebody who has emailed me um, that's just being very nasty about a complaint, but if it wasn't nasty, might be a legitimate complaint. I try to respond, and I try to respond in neutral of a tone as possible. Mm -hmm. And usually, if they respond to that email, they do so in a much more polite way because I have been polite to them. And so I think, I think journalists need to realize that even if you're talking to somebody that's older than you. Um, you're if you're in especially and especially if you're interviewing that person you are actually the person of power in that relationship because you're about to write down what they say and broadcast it to the world so i think it is incumbent upon us to always be the more mature party in any given situation uh, because we're kind of controlling the tone of that conversation mm -hmm. now you were a history teacher before a journalist is that right yeah, I was. I was a history teacher in um, Newark, New Jersey. Okay. I, I always feel like history of any kind, whether you're an educator or whether that's your major in college, is a pretty good background to have going into um, journalism. Yeah, I think that it is. I mean, I would <laughs> I would love for you to, have, to go back in time and say that to the students that I taught. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a very difficult time convincing that, like, learning about the Mayan Empire would really benefit them like But no, I, I think that it was really good preparation. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that students should take this to heart as well. So the, um, there is a very, and I'm sure that everybody who's listening to this podcast probably 
knows exactly what I'm talking about. There's a very specific structure for um, DBQs, um, which the, the, the essays that you have to write with evidence for AT tests or mm -hmm. any kind of standardized test, you, you know, you write them in this very specific way. That structure is actually not all that different from the way that you write any piece of research, journalism included. Yeah. And so the, the, the way that you know, I taught my students to think about primary sources and the way that I taught them to sort of pull those primary sources into essays is exactly what I do every single day. Um, or to like take a document and like you ask that document questions about what you need to know. Um, I like I do that all the time. I do that every single day. So I think the skills are very translatable. Um, and so that was a happy sort of thing for me to realize once I made my career switch. Mm hmm. Were you having more fun when you were teaching about the elections of history, or are you having more fun now? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I think that I'm having fun in different ways. Yeah. But I think, honestly, I think that I was having more fun when I was teaching about the history of the election. So when I, during the 2012 election was my last year teaching, mm -hmm. and... Um, I was actually also the debate coach, and so oh. I gave my students, yeah, so I gave my students extra credit if they would watch the presidential debate and then come to debate practice on a specific day, and we'd had, like, we had these, like, really robust discussions about what they heard during the presidential debates, and I'm not going to lie to you, I only expected maybe four or five kids to me up on that answer on that on that offer yeah and there were like 30 kids on my debate team and <laughs> all of them did like they got so into it and it was so fun to watch you know these 16 17 and 18 year olds like really get into a presidential election <laughs> and you know I, all of my students had my cell phone number for emergencies and because i was their coach and we often had to connect on the weekends and, but they never really took advantage of that. But during these presidential elections, every time something crazy happened, I just got this, like, flood of text messages from my kids who were watching these programming being like, oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe that they said that. And it was so fun. Like, I had the best time during the 2012 election. And my coverage of elections since has not matched <laughs> the level of fun that I had then. So I guess the, the real answer is that I had more fun teaching elections <laughs> than covering them. <laughs> Did you have or do you have like a like a favorite election? Like what's the all time like most interesting, like craziest election that, that there is to, to teach or one that you were like, man, that would have been cool, crazy to cover? You know what? I really think that I would have loved, and I think maybe this is because I am I now cover the cover election administration and voting rights. But I think that the 2000 election was fascinating mm -hmm. um, and led to a lot of the change that I in election administration that I am now covering now. So if your students are not familiar, because they were probably if they were born they were probably not very old right the 2000 yeah the 2000 election um was george w bush won the popular vote or won the electoral college and al gore won the popular mm -hmm. vote and it really all came down to florida and in florida there was sort of an election administration nightmare um so there were these so back then when you voted in florida you punched these little cards um, so you yeah. Oh my gosh. Machine, 
and you punch a hole through the candidate that you wanted to to vote for. But if sometimes these machines malfunction and they didn't like actually punch all the way through, and so you had this little thing that hung off the end called a hanging chad, which looks a lot like when you like punch something with a hole puncher and it doesn't quite go. So they had those, and so people, like, the machines didn't count them right, and they had to recount by hand, and then they had to make all these decisions about whether or not this punched through enough to count, and they were completely arbitrary. And then also there were other election administration problems, like some machines didn't work, some precincts, like, had major, you know, problems, there were really long lines, people didn't get to vote. It was it was so fascinating to me, in retrospect, that that decided the presidential election could be counted one way or the other, depending mm-hmm. on how bad you thought the election administration of that state was. And so when I tell people I cover the way that people vote, I cover election administration, I cover voting rights, and they're like, well, who cares about that? I just care about the campaigns. I'm like, no, no, no. It all <laughs> counted for no one. Um, so, you know, and after the, that election, with all of those problems, like, even the Bush administration, which was like put into office because they decided to think about the problems in one specific way, yep. um, they went about trying to fix those problems. So they passed the Help America Vote Act, which infused millions of dollars into the system, and everybody bought voting machines um, with those so we didn't have these hanging chat problems and then shored up a lot of election administration issues. Now we're sort of seeing that come home to roost, which is that the last time anyone bought voting machines in this country, and this is true, and in at any scale, was after the 2000 election. Hmm. So we've got voting machines that were manufactured in 2001 that are touch screens that are that were made before the iPhone was invented. <laughs> so we're like these are these are old machines and they break all the time. And the federal government since the year two thousand and two, which is when the Help America Vote Act passed, has like not really thought about election administration since then. And so now we're seeing all of these problems because these old machines are breaking and people are having problems voting again. And I think we're just sort of gearing up. So all of the work that I do basically is because of the 2000 election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really would have liked to have been a journalist during it so that I had a little bit more perspective. So for all you first-time 18-year-old voters out there, the voting machines are probably older than you are <laughs> yeah, they, that you're like, using. Truly, they probably are. And then also, you know, if you are an 18-year-old voter and you're standing at a voting machine and it, it's not doing what you want it to do, Tell the election administrator very quickly yeah. because that means that it's old and needs to be recalibrated. It doesn't mean that it's like hacked or something. So, you know, just a hot tip for new voters. <laughs> older than the iPhone, older than first-time voters, it's out of control. Yeah, mm-hmm, <laughs> definitely. And less, probably less advanced technologies in the phone in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> that give you a lot of confidence in American democracy. So much fun. <laughs> Uh, so paint us a quick picture. What's your day going to look like election day on the job? Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> on election day, so we are covering voting from the time the polls open on the East coast to the time the polls close in Hawaii. Um, and so that, yeah. And so that day looks like, uh, me getting to the newsroom at six o'clock in the morning. Um, and then I probably will not leave the newsroom until 1.30 in the morning. There so you it's go. A very, 
very long day. Um, and then also, I'm the spokesperson for election land. And because we're the only person, only people covering election administration in the country, um, there are a lot of national news organizations that will be present in our system. So I have to be looking not like a crazy person, <laughs> even though that's a very long day, um, all day long, because I'm going to be doing national TV spots every hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got to, you know make sure that my hair isn't going insane <laughs> like it otherwise would be if I had that long of a day. So it's going to be a long, very stressful day. Um, and we have, uh, because we're processing so much data that's coming into us on that day and pushing it out to so many local partners, we've hired um, a lot of part-time freelance journalists to come in on that day. So we're going to have, ProPublica is, is, is not a very big newsroom, but we're going to have so many people working for us on that day that we actually had to move newsrooms. So we have, we're using the City University of New York's Journalism School as our mm. newsroom that day because it's about twice as big as ProPublica's newsroom. <laughs> There's space for all of us. So we're kind of setting up this big newsroom on election day that's going to be open for 20 hours um, and, and, and churning out what we hope will be really great tips for local reporters. I guess we'll know how your day is going when you, we see you on CNN or something like that. <laughs> yeah, hope, and hopefully I don't look too deranged. So <laughs> if I do, I hope that your, your listeners will, you know, send me a quick Twitter DM being like, hey, Jessica. Yeah, kind of crazy. <laughs> important, helpful tips there. <laughs> Thank you, yes. <laughs> okay, well, this has been so much fun. I appreciate you joining us today, uh, Jessica. Thank oh, you again. No problem. Thanks again. I I appreciate being on here and and what you're doing for student journalists. That concludes our show. You can follow Jessica's work leading up to, during, and after the election at ProPublica.org. Thanks for listening.